I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. Speaking for women who can't. More privacy, less NSA surveillance. Change perspective. Change the world. Guts. Heart, passion, drive, Wi-Fi. Hey, welcome back. I'm very excited about today's episode. I got to talk with my friend and venture capitalist Jalik Jobin-Putra of Future Perfect Ventures. It's one of the premier investors in blockchain. That's the technology that powers cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. Jalik's parents immigrated from Africa to India, and Jalik herself was born in Kenya. And it was her firsthand experience in countries that most Americans couldn't even find on a map that allowed her to see the value of blockchain really early on and the huge potential it had to bring billions of people into the financial system. So we talked a lot about Bitcoin, but also about the underlying technology blockchain that enables all these cryptocurrencies, and especially about how Jalik thinks it can be used for all sorts of other information and data exchange in the future. Well, I was born in Nairobi, Kenya, in Africa. My parents were born and raised in Tanzania. My family's originally from India. So uh, we have a very kind of global mindset. My parents were immigrants, um, or my grandparents were immigrants to, to Africa from India. Uh, my parents were immigrants to the United States. We moved uh, when I was five years old. So your uh, parents were first generation from India to... Uh, to Tanzania, Tanzania, actually, sorry. different parts of okay. Tanzania. Yeah. And uh, they ended up meeting while they were in school in okay. India and then moving back to East Africa, but moving to Uganda. Okay. Um, and, and so, uh, and, and once the, once Idi Amin came into Uganda or right before he, um, uh, you know, started killing lots of uh, foreigners there, they had already decided to move to Nairobi because of the political uh, instability there. Wow. And then they moved to the U.S. when you were... Five. Five. And why did they decide to move to the U.S.? Well, because of what they had seen in terms of uh, the political instability in, in Uganda, they had just decided that uh, the United States would likely be a better place, as you know, many people around the world sure. uh, often do. Uh, and, and we've had a long legacy of, of immigrants and what immigrants add to our country. Uh, my parents decided that it was probably best for our family to uh, to base themselves and here. And this is sort of like, I'm just going to guess, this is like the late 60s, early 70s? Early 70s, well, mid-70s. Mid-70s, okay. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so definitely a, a time of big change in the United States, too, when they got here. Yes. Uh, and and it, it's, it's interesting to look at my experience as a first-generation immigrant in the United States and uh, what my parents had to basically rebuild. Uh, they had a very nice life in East Africa, and I, I grew up going there and going to India and, and especially kind of appreciating what they had given up uh, in, in terms of um, just comforts in Africa to start all over in, in a country that, you know, frankly was not – 
as diverse as it is now right. and inclusive as it is now, even though it feels like it's not terribly inclusive these days. I, I encountered a lot of prejudice growing up. You said that they met while they were in school. What did they or what did they do as professions when you were growing up or what did they study while they were in they're, school? They're doctors. They're doctors, okay. Yeah, and, and my mom especially, and I often get asked, you know, as a woman in a male-dominated world, and I started off in investment banking um, before I was an entrepreneur and before I was a venture capitalist. So I've been in male-dominated sectors my, my entire career, and I come from a legacy of very strong women who have uh, really taken paths that other women haven't. And, and so my mom would get on a ship uh, from Lindy, uh, a small port town in Tanzania, and, and take the ship over to, to India and, and go to medical school there. And, wow. and that was kind of very radical back then to do something like that. You came here, and the outward environment was probably very challenging, but the example that you had at home was, like, very inspirational. It, like a, it was, like, a really a great example right off the bat. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, uh, you know, saw uh, what hard work uh, can result in, and, and uh, my parents are very generous people, and no matter what kind of prejudice we encountered, their answer was, well, when people haven't been exposed to other cultures, uh, as was the case where I grew up, it's really up to us to expose them and explain things to them because we can't really expect other people to understand our point of view if that's not what they've experienced. So it's, it's a lesson that I think you know, we all should pay attention to. And, and certainly that empathy has, I believe, made me a better investor in my career. Uh, did they have to sort of start over as doctors when they got here? Yes, yes. So my dad redid his residency. Um, we lived with relatives, um, distant relatives, when we first moved here. This is in New Jersey, Yes, right? in yeah. New Jersey, um, very rural New Jersey. And uh, my well, – well, Why New Jersey, by the way? <laughs> well, so – you know, there are certain places where uh, Indians kind of gravitated towards, and, and, and uh, New Jersey was one of them once you start, and, and I think this is true of most immigrant communities, once you start to have a critical mass, that's where others kind of have heard of or feel more comfortable or know somebody who knows somebody there. And so that was um, one of the reasons we, we ended up there. So there were some um, friends and, or family yeah, or yeah. other connections family that, lived that, there, that that was there already. Uh, and we did the same for, you know, my dad's brothers who came over much later. Um, and they stayed with us for a while when they, they came over. And, um, and, and, and so my dad redid his residency. He ended up opening a private practice in, in our small town, uh, a town of farmers where, you know, sometimes the, the farmers wouldn't have health insurance and they would pay him in bushels of tomatoes, which sounds crazy that this was, you know, this was the late 70s, early 80s, that that was, uh, that was happening. Some alternate, some experience with alternative payments. Yes, and, and, and bartering. And, yeah. you know, we're all coming back to some of that now these days. Uh, and, and my mom actually um, sacrificed a lot by, and, and stayed home and, and, uh, because she felt like someone needed to be home um, in this new country and, and, and start exposing the kids to you know, the way American kids grew up. She sacrificed a lot in, in terms of making sure that we were set up. Um, I was a very shy child. Uh, I actually had trouble picking up English. Uh, English was not my first language. And, and you know, having that support at home made, made a big difference for me. 
Yeah. So, and I, I'm always interested in this because I've, I found talking to people that, uh, you know, really their backgrounds and parents really have a big important role in sort of like who they become or what they're interested in. And sometimes it's like following them and sometimes it's doing exactly the opposite. Uh, but specifically, and I want to talk about this in a little bit, but, uh, you're involved in venture capital and you've had a long career in venture capital, but now specifically you, you actually do a lot of work with technology that has the ability to really change some of these parts of the world that you're from um, and many other parts uh, in a really big way. And so that's sort of I key on. I started off asking about it. One big question I had was, and I sort of think about this around all venture capitalists, and I think um, when I talk to people, they have the same question, which is, did you always want to be a venture capitalist? Like, how does one become a venture capitalist? That's a great question. If you read my high school yearbook, everyone thought I was going to become a novelist. Uh, I had very little exposure to the business world when I was growing up. Um, even when I applied to college, it was as an English major. I grew up actually being a, a fairly serious ballet dancer. And uh, after I got injured, I thought, you know, what I love doing next is, is writing. And I uh, ended up taking an economics class my freshman year of college and loved it. And I felt it was a microeconomics class. I felt like it you know, the world made sense all of a sudden uh, once I started studying it. And we, we all now know, or I know now, that it's a lot more complicated <laughs> than that, the supply and demand curves. But uh, I, I just became more and more interested in business. And, and so I ended up majoring in finance from Wharton. I went to Penn and uh, communications from Annenberg. And I actually, as part of my Annenberg curriculum, I studied social cybernetics and feedback systems in society. Uh, once I uh, learned more about the internet, started using it, I, I knew that I had to be a part of it uh, because... I felt like this technology could really impact the developing world that I had seen, and, and this new access to information could impact education and financial services and help bring the world kind of closer together, and, and all the talent that was out there but didn't have a voice could now have a voice. So I went into investment banking after college. A quick question here, which is around the timing of this, because you said early 90s, but I mean, so still we're looking at like the Mosaic browsers like coming out in like 1990 or 94. You were, sounds like you were in school at that time. Yeah, I actually... It's like kind of a, a perfect, I mean, there's there's something about sort of seeing that stuff at that age also, which is important, right? Absolutely. And, and I mean, I was actually not using the internet until uh, 1990, well, it was actually 1994, 1995, um, after I graduated from college. So I was already in investment banking, but I worked on the Netscape IPO in 1995 wow. when I was a banker. That's amazing. And I will never forget sitting in that conference room uh, with my fellow bankers and just watching that stock price go up. And this was a company that, you know, was not profitable, that it, it kind of broke every rule. Uh, it had only been around a, a couple years. And, um, and we all looked at each other and said, wow, you know, something's changing here in the world. And I'd already been thinking about what I just said about the information flow and, and what, what this could mean in terms of bringing the world closer together, giving people more access uh, just by having more information at their fingertips. And that was the moment when I decided, you know, I, I had to figure out a way to, to get more engaged in this, um, this new technology. And so after investment banking, I was on the launch team of a startup that distributed financial research online. 
uh, and that was here in New York in 1997. And um, while I, I love the operational side, I, I missed that kind of more big picture view I got when I was in investment banking. And that's when I started thinking about venture capital. So I kind of fell into it uh, by just thinking about what I enjoyed doing, where I felt I could have the most impact. And, and to me, it was, you know, investing in early stage companies um, and, and kind of building a portfolio and sharing information to, um, to make the, the sum bigger than the individual parts of a portfolio. And, and that to me is what, you know, venture capital really should be about. So tell me about starting your own firm then. About four years ago in uh, 2013, I looked around and I've been in venture since 1999, been in the tech industry since uh, 1993. And I was amazed at how little the venture capital model and, and perspective had really changed over time during the course of my career. And Silicon Valley was still considered the epicenter. And while there's a lot of talent there and, and obviously a lot of experience in startups uh, and technology, I felt like we were moving to another phase of tech development where domain expertise in different sectors was going to be just as important as the technology side of things. And so I thought New York you know, was lacking enough early stage funds that had experience um, that, that could address this growing pool of talent here and, and uh, entrepreneurs that wanted to uh, start companies in New York City. So that, that was one driver. Uh, a second driver was um, VC has been very non-diverse industry. Uh, and I had talked to so many women over the years who wanted to come into the industry but were turned off by the culture right. at different firms. And it was important for me to start a fund that, that had a more inclusive culture from the get-go that, you know, it's okay to have different perspectives. And, and part of it is my, my experience as an immigrant, as, as a woman, as uh, someone who's lived around the world, um, which is very different than the average uh, venture capitalist in, in the United States. And I actually felt like it was important to have that point of view out there um, but I also viewed it as a competitive advantage as, you know, tech development was becoming more global and, and, uh, and that global perspective, and instead of being a hindrance where, you know, I think a lot of VCs didn't understand the value of it or thought everything's going to keep happening in the U.S., we don't really need to look elsewhere, or we don't even have to, you know, get on a plane um, from Silicon Valley to even come to New York, which, you know, was, was the case like right. five, six years yeah. ago. So I, I, that, that was another driver. And, and, and the third, and I'd say the most important driver, was this thesis that was starting to come together in my mind, uh, which is linked to globalization, which was that you know, we're going to have another 3 billion people around the world coming online. Uh, more of those people were going to have smartphones. We're going to see billions of devices getting connected, sensors everywhere, while the cost of processing power was going to come down. I mean, right now, we have more processing power in our smartphones than NASA had when they put a man on the moon in 1969. Right. So 
and and that's continuing. Uh, you know, Moore's law is is continuing to take hold. And and I worked at Intel, and so um, uh, looked at also the hardware side as well as software. And and I started thinking of a thesis of decentralization. And and I really I didn't see other funds out there doing this. And 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 so I thought you know, why not start a fund focused on this? And that's the same time that I went to my first Bitcoin conference in 2013. And it really gelled together. This concept of having technology, which is the blockchain, which Bitcoin is built on, where people can connect peer-to-peer, machines can connect peer-to-peer, machines can connect to people peer-to-peer, transact information, transact currency, you know, transact anything without intermediaries. So bringing costs of these transactions down, uh, I thought, you know, would unleash a lot of kind of economic potential and impact out there. And, uh, and, and so the thesis of the fund was decentralized technology and applications built on decentralized technology. So blockchain we were one of the first investors in, in, in the sector uh, starting in 2013. So blockchain technology, infrastructure around blockchain, uh, security, which is an important component if we're going to have all this communication between people and devices, we want to make sure that communication is as secure as possible. And Internet of Things, uh, which is that connectivity of, of devices and sensors, uh, as well as data analytics and machine intelligence. So. Right. You're starting the fund, and on some level, there's like some of the parts that can be really challenging about who you were at the time and your background in sort of society at large uh, that were hard. And then there's other side of it, which is it sounds like actually was a huge asset, which is you had a perspective that other people didn't have. You'd been to other parts of the world and not just been there, but really understood them in a way that a lot of people here probably never did. Um, and because, uh, I, I sort of what you're saying is because of some of your background as a woman, you had like deal flow essentially that all these other white guys, no offense to the white guys probably didn't get. So there's really two sides to this and the positive side is really inspiring. What was the negative side like? Was it really, was it hard to raise money as a woman in New York? Was it, um, was it hard to hire people? Like, what was that like? Because at this point now it looks, it's like, it looks really successful and it's great, but that journey must not have been easy. No, it wasn't an easy journey, and it's incredibly fulfilling to to see how well the thesis has taken hold, and and um, how the fundraising for the second fund was very different than than the first fund. Uh, the The first fund, look, it's hard for anyone to raise right. their first fund. Yeah. So if you if you take that as as a given, uh, there there was. Still a lot of comments on, you know, we haven't, LPs, limited partners who invest in funds, hadn't ever had a woman pitch to them, right. um, pitch a new fund. Uh, there, were, there were cases where, you know, I'd be at a conference and I, I would say, you know, I'm raising money for, for this fund and they would assume I, I was the hired fundraiser for the fund and, right. and there would be some shock that it was actually me as a principal. I, I definitely think there are biases that we have in in society, and and the venture capitalist is is usually you know a white male, forty or fifty something guy, or you know these days often much younger, um, but but it's usually 
the white male that people assume as, as the VC. Having stayed in the industry for so many years, despite all the biases I constantly encountered and, and kind of persevering through that, has you know, made me really, really good at what I do and passionate yeah. <laughs> about what I do. And I often say that when you know, I meet women who've kind of persevered in their careers through a lot of this, they're, they're really good at what they do. And, um, and, and, and I've also had a lot of uh, male, great male supporters along the way. I mean, I remember the guy who hired me at Intel Capital once said to me, you know, I've never heard something unintelligent come out of your mouth. And so you should talk more. You should feel comfortable to talk, speak up more. It doesn't matter who else is in the room. It doesn't matter if Andy Grove is in the room. You should speak more. And, and so that kind of encouragement and even thinking that, oh, I didn't realize I, I was holding back or that I had per more permission to speak. Um, so having folks like that along my career who also provided a lot of positive reinforcement or encouragement uh, what was extremely beneficial and, and I, I'd say very important to, you know, filter out and understand that people come, it goes back to the way I was raised, you know, people can only relate to what they come from. Sometimes it makes it harder to overcome that, but it's possible to, and, and I've just been also very driven by a love for what I do. I mean, I wake up every morning and I feel incredibly lucky that I get to talk to smart people who are out there to change the world and build new technology and who don't see current boundaries and, and help kind of enable that and partner with these entrepreneurs. So I never lose sight of the impact I potentially can have. Yeah. Um, at partnering with all these folks. And, and, and that's really what, what's helped me kind of get through some of these biases that I've experienced. But you've also like put yourself in a community of people to some extent that are inspiring you, right? That's a big part of it, isn't it? Absolutely. That's, yeah. that's a great point. It didn't just happen. You, you immersed yourself in that world. Yes, yes, I did. And and going back to that first Bitcoin conference and kind of the energy, and I literally got goosebumps. And, and sometimes that's how I know I'm going to invest in a company is just that, yeah, you know, that excitement I feel of, of not having seen something similar before or just being across from somebody who's so inspiring. I was in a room full of developers and then entrepreneurs who were very early into exploring this and thinking about their next ideas and that they wanted their next company to be based on this new technology. And nobody still knows where it's all headed. Uh, but that that energy in the room I hadn't seen since the early days of the internet. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Right. So tell me a bit about, tell me about the blockchain. Give me like the one minute primer on how this technology actually works. I think every, most people's experience, if they've experienced using it, is going to be with Bitcoin, maybe some other type of cryptocurrency. They're, if they haven't used it, what they think about it is somehow going to be related to Bitcoin, I would think. But Bitcoin is really just uh, something that sits on the top of blockchain. There could be lots of other uses for blockchain. Yes, I think about so what Bitcoin has done with the blockchain. It's converted currency. So if I buy $1 worth of, of, of Bitcoin, uh, I get a private key to that Bitcoin that sits on the blockchain. And I can use that private key to send this dollar worth of Bitcoin anywhere in the world. Um, uh, at first, it was just to somebody who had another Bitcoin address that you know could unlock it with their private key. Um, and, and now I've invested in companies that kind of do all of that on the back end. And so you could do it through a regular bank account. But the key here is this information is being transmitted um, in a way that doesn't require authentication by banks or other intermediaries. Right now, you know, there are billions of dollars being spent um, to verify transactions. That If I say I have this dollar in a bank account, well, you know, the bank has to verify it. The sending bank, the receiving bank has to verify it. It costs $30 to send a wire transfer from one country to another. I mean, with Bitcoin, the fees are often as low as like 3%. It could be even lower, but, you know, some of these companies have to make money to mm-hmm. be able to verify that transaction. So, so that whole cost of sending, and right now it's currency with Bitcoin, but, but it could be any piece of data. It could be a piece of my health record that I decide that I, I want to send um, my medical or parts of my medical history to a pharmaceutical for their study, um, and they can pay me back in, in tokens or, you know, whether it's Bitcoin or some other currency, but I... Unlock, I give them the ability to unlock that data and only the data I permission out. And then I can monetize that data. And the other thing is that data can be anonymized. So they don't have to link it back to my home address or anything I don't want them to. And, and so I view that, you know, the 20th century, we, we kind of built our systems on intermediaries. The 21st century, we're going to disintermediate the intermediaries. And, and, and that, you know, again, it's billions and maybe trillions of dollars locked up uh, in these fees that we pay to verify all sorts of transactions. If we unleash that back into um, the global GDP, I mean, that just frees up, um, you know, what's possible. So, you, I mean, you were talking about earlier about decentralization, right? And this is a, obviously a pretty core example of that. But uh, this is a, it's a huge challenge to a massive power structure also, right? You know, I mean, it, it, I think back to the days of the web and, like, I was young and you sort of, you sort of realized this, this, this could be a big challenge to a power structure that anybody suddenly could start publishing things and sharing things and 
typically only media companies were able to do yes. that or whatever industry you want to get into, there was a big challenge. But uh, this is like the challenge of all challenges in a way, right? I mean, banks are at the core of this huge power structure that essentially determines who has access to the financial system and how much it costs to access that system. Absolutely. And and there's lots of, there's how many people, there's, I mean, there's billions of people all over the world. I, I, what is it? Do you, is it two or three billion people who literally don't have access to the financial system? Yeah, because, it's two billion unbanked um, yeah. people in the world. And that's because they don't have the right documentation or they don't have access to They don't to have the, credit history. Yeah. Um, a, a lot of them live in rural areas and in parts of Africa and India and Southeast Asia where banks have just found it too unprofitable to, to reach these these customers. And and uh, and uh, yeah, I use the example of M-Pesa in in Kenya, which is their digital money transfer system. Um, they're kind of ground zero for mobile money. Um, I start. I first used it in uh, 2008 when on a trip to to Kenya, and you know they they didn't have smartphones and they were just using these very simple feature phones to transmit money, um, and uh, it it was life changing for most people there where, you know, before if someone had a business, they'd have to go collect money physically from another person. And and sometimes, you know, it would would take a day to to go collect that money. And and, and this just allowed uh, digital transfer of money from one bank account to another. And I remember just being amazed that they could do that because we certainly couldn't do that right. in, in, in the U.S. in 2008. And they couldn't believe that the U.S., this this great country that was considered a financial capital, uh, we, we were not able to do something similar with our with our phones. Um, and, and, and so I believe that... Uh, uh, you know, this is going to the digital currency and and blockchain applications are like the next stage of of what M-Pesa was able to do because then we we can start to do it with pieces of any information and and we could use data interchangeably with currency and and you know in my mind I just see this like vast interconnected world of machines and people transacting value. And, and nobody actually, we're the ones who will determine what value means to us and, and how much our data, you know, means to us and, and kind of put a price on that data to be able to exchange that, that data. So I think it goes beyond the currency. I think the currency applications are the first element of this. Um, and I've invested in a few companies, one's called BitPesa, which um, has built a Bitcoin blockchain platform for Africa. They started off in Kenya. They're now in Nigeria um, and West Africa and uh, places like the DRC, uh, where they're just taking this concept of a digital and mobile money transfer, uh, placing it on the Bitcoin blockchain, so allowing instantaneous transactions at very low fees um, and you know, it could sometimes cost up to 20% of a transaction for a small business to transfer money from one African country to another. They brought it down to 3%. Wow. So that 17% is going back in the hands and of... There's, and there's no traditional bank involved in this? 
No. Right. There's no, no. HSBC or Citibank. There's no need for a third third party to clear the information or no. to sign off on. No, it because once once I I have that um, money in in my wallet, it's verified um, that that I have that money and and it can be sent directly to another wallet um, through right. the Bitcoin blockchain. Is there interest by is there interest by banks to be involved? Is there like is there interest by banks to be involved in in Bitcoin, I know I saw recently that like uh, I think even on your twi- on one of your tweets you retweeted I think uh, the guy from Goldman who was like hadn't decided yet whether he thought Bitcoin was worthwhile or not, which I thought was funny, I guess. Well, it's it's interesting that was Lloyd Lankfein and and uh, Goldman has been very interested in the in, in the blockchain sector. They've actually filed a number of patents around digital currency and blockchain over, over the last uh, two to three years. So it's certainly something that, at least blockchain is certainly something they're interested in. I mean, it could be used for a clearing on the back end, you know, between banks. Uh, and and there, there's a lot of applications. Now, I think there's been tremendous interest uh, from high net worths and hedge funds and institutions to uh, invest in, in cryptocurrency. We've seen tremendous appreciation just since May of this year in 2017 to now. I think uh, Bitcoin maybe was at a hundred uh, or sorry, a thousand dollars a Bitcoin in January and it's now um, you know went up to 5,000. It's now um, around I believe 4200. Uh, and then Ethereum, which is another cryptocurrency with a different blockchain, um, has. I mean, I remember it, uh, I spoke at a conference in in April, and it was at thirty, and it's now at um, it's gone somewhere. You know, it's in the three hundreds. So, so there's been no return like that in any other asset. So, so it's certainly caught the attention of a lot of money managers and high net worths, and and so I think these banks um, are are getting asked, you know, by their clients, you know, what is this about? How can I buy and sell? There's a whole infrastructure around just cryptocurrencies that still needs to be built out in, in, in terms of secure custody. So these software wallets that give you access, a lot of times those have been hacked. Right. Um, so the, the blockchain itself is secure, but the on and off ramps yet have to get more secure. Right. Exchanges around the world, um, you know, d- can't provide full liquidity for large amounts of transactions. So so I, I believe, you know, I believe companies like Goldman and other banks um, will start to build, help build some infrastructure around that. How, how important do you think the role of anonymity is in, like, in Bitcoin or just in general in cryptocurrencies? Is that like a really, because essentially Bitcoin's anonymous, right? It's a big part of it. Do you think that's, is that like a really important part of what makes the whole thing work? Well, I, I consider it pseudo-anonymous. Okay. I, I think it, it can be anonymous, but we're now seeing, especially when we start to look at more kind of institutional money coming in or governments starting to look at it, uh, there are tracking mechanisms that, that are possible. And, and there, there are uh, cryptocurrencies that uh, are emerging that have more privacy considerations, so are completely anonymous and wouldn't allow any sort of tracking. But uh, I think we're going to see limited applications of those or, you know, some of them being used in in more private blockchains maybe between 
um, banks that that want you know uh, to to uh, keep some of their customer information like more anonymous. So, so I I think what we're going to see is is um, and more cryptocurrencies being issued for different uses. And, and for some, you know, privacy is going to be more paramount. And, and I use healthcare as an example. I, that's an area I'm very interested in, in terms of blockchain applications. And uh, right now, none of the blockchains out there can comply with uh, HIPAA compliance. So, you know, the U.S. privacy regulations. And, and so, you know, I can see a cryptocurrency being built or a derivative of a current crypto being built that takes that into consideration. And so we're in what I consider, you know, 1994 internet. Right. Um, we didn't know what applications would be built. I mean, people back then were saying no one's going to use the internet for commerce and it's too clunky and, um, you know, why do I need broadband anyway? I'm not going to use this. And, 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 you know, we're in a world right now that if we don't have like instantaneous access, we're, you know, we're upset and we, we now have, um, you know, incredible data connectivity. And, and it was all things that most people think they didn't need. And, and I'd say, you know, was it Blockbuster right. that that said, you know, this this is going away. It's a fad. I mean, Jamie Dimon just called Bitcoin a fad, and and you know, it it just reminded me of of what people had said about the internet yeah, in, in the early days. Absolutely. Um, I was asking about the anonymity thing because there's this argument out there that part of what keeps people all over the world out of the banking system is like the governments and the regulations needed to like be able to identify every single transaction, right? That they're so concerned around about money laundering and all these things, which are obviously important, uh, that there's a lot of requirements and regulations around knowing who got what money and how, where it went and all those. And those are all certainly good reasons behind all of them. But some of that actually then pushes all the way out to the limits, which is that sometimes it's hard for people to get identification cards in certain parts of the world, or there's not an infrastructure around that type of thing. And that actually, that this... This uh, focus on wanting everything to be like legal and clean and secure really keeps some people out. Do you think that that's true? And yeah, I actually think this technology uh, can can help with that. And and identity uh, is is one of the areas I'm most actively investing in. And so you hit on um, an area where I think this technology can actually be very helpful. Um, we have a billion and a half people around the world right now with no form of. Uh, identity, like government identity, so no passports, um, no national ID cards, which, and a lot of those are refugees, and I would say we're going to see more refugees uh, in, in the future from both, you know, political actions, but also climate. Um, you know, something a lot of people don't think about is is climate refugees and, and, and people being displaced, and we're, you know, we, right. we're, we're, we're seeing a bit of that right, right now, right now yeah. with, with, um, with the hurricanes in the Caribbean. So, you know, when, when often these people go to a new country, they have lost their form of identification if they ever had it. And then you have a number of people who, around the world who, who never, you know, who never were issued um, formal ID. So imagine if you could verify a person, um, say just, you know, even if it's biometrically, uh, and India is doing this in a centralized database, actually, but they've brought a billion people onto a form of um, a national ID, most of them 
um, or a lot of them were in rural areas that didn't really, I mean, they definitely didn't have bank accounts. And so what they've done is biometrically through fingerprints, uh, authenticated people, and then taking, you know, their address and their uh, personal information, uh, work history, you know, whatever it is. Imagine if you can write all of that onto a blockchain, this highly secure database, and then I would have a private key to all of my information on that database, and I can start to permission it out. So if I want to open a bank account, I can give access to this information, and, and, and the bank could know that I'm not lying about it. This has been verified when it was put in initially. I can cross borders with that private key, and, and you know it doesn't have to go through a government database right. uh, to be verified. So there's no um, third party that actually, like, has God's view of the data. There's no Equifax that can accidentally like let it all out. It's it's all secured anonymously until you open it. Yes. Until you until you use your key to share that information yes. with somebody else. Is that what India is doing? Well, no, they're not doing it on the blockchain. Right. They've built these centralized databases right. of information, which gives the government a great amount of power. Um, but the reason people have agreed to doing it is is they're getting paid government benefits through the bank accounts that are then linked to that identification. Right. Um, and and but I, I, you know, what we're seeing there is that people are willing to provide that information, um, even to a centralized database, if they're getting value right. in, in return. And uh, and and you know what I worry about is is you know that database getting hacked, and it has gotten hacked. And, and I mean, we certainly just saw it with Equifax here, where most of the adult population here, uh, our information was hacked. And that's what blockchain technology can guard against. Like, if we have our information in decentralized nodes around the world, and we have um, only our private key can access pieces of that, that, that's very powerful. So some of the early investments I've made in uh, blockchain were around the infrastructure. Uh, again, I look at it as 1994 and 1995 internet. Uh, what uh, were the infrastructure needs back then to then allow application development? Um, so I invested in a company called blockchain.info. Uh, um, great name. Uh, it's at blockchain.com. And they are the largest uh cryptocurrency wallet in the world. So a software wallet that you can download um, and, and kind of store access to your uh, cryptocurrency and then buy and sell it. Uh, and they're global. Um, they're in all of the major markets in the world, plus some, I believe Indonesia is one of their largest markets. So they've really reached places where um, there is demand uh, to, to buy and hold cryptocurrency and, and where a lot of the population is, is unbanked. Um, and they have experienced you know, tremendous growth over the last year as, as the demand uh, to hold cryptos has, has increased amongst institutions as, as, as well as individuals. Uh, so that's one I'm very excited about. Google just invested in their Series B, led the Series B. Um, I was a pre-A investor. Um, Richard Branson uh, and Lightspeed, which invested in Snap, were the Series A leads. I've invested in, I mentioned BitPesa, which is uh, Africa's uh, kind of default Bitcoin blockchain network. 
Um, they're also experiencing a lot of growth. Um, interesting company that is using non-currency applications is uh, called Everledger. And the founder comes from the diamond industry and has seen an increase in the amount of fraud in, in the industry. So a lot of um, like kind of counterfeit diamonds coming in the market. A lot of them are from China where serial numbers are copied, even inclusions in the diamond are copied. And so the GI, the current GIA certificates are, are not as secure or reliable as they used to be given the amount of counterfeits. Uh, there's also an increase in, in demand for transparency of where these diamonds come from, so with the conflict diamonds. And, and so retailers, you know, like Tiffany's don't want to sell jewelry that has conflict diamonds. And and how do you how do you really verify that? Mm. And and so uh, Leanne Kemp, the founder, came up with the idea of putting uh, diamond information and provenance from mine to retailer um, on the blockchain, so you can track a diamond. Uh, and you know diamonds are often cut, so you can actually track that process, too, of a diamond when it's split up into pieces. And, and all of that data gets associated with, with one diamond, and, and it, you know, it can split off into other diamonds. And, and that's the beauty of, of, of having all of this trackable on software. You can divvy it up as, as much as you need to. You can add information to um, one diamond. So every time it, it goes travel somewhere, you can add that information. And it, it's all accessible on a database, a master blockchain database that you know hasn't been hacked because right. it's highly secure. They're even partnering with some retailers around the world that um, are now going to issue uh, a digital blockchain certificate uh, to their customers. And my view is, at least initially, you can actually charge a premium for for assets that are kind of blockchain verified. Huh. Down the road, where I think it gets very interesting is when you can start to securitize some of these assets, and and you can, like now, be able to offer you know pieces of these assets to investors around the world. I mean, and and that's really been only available to institutional investors before. Mm. And, and, and so I, I think, you know, we're just in the beginning of exploring what, you know, getting all of this asset information on the blockchain can mean. And then we're going to see, you know, new types of investable opportunities that are accessible to a broader swath of the population. And, right. and that's where it gets really exciting. And you have some investments in machine learning also. Yes, right? yes. I'm an investor in a company called Fuse Machines that has used robotics technology um, to offer kind of better sales processes within enterprises. Um, so, uh, you know, right now the kind of outbound and inbound sales processes are, are kind of very manual and, you know, automating who is more likely to close within what time frame and, and kind of gathering and public information around different sources, sifting through that information in a real-time way, kind of connecting it to LinkedIn and, and other contact databases, so internal and external. What's very exciting about that company is um, the founder is originally from Nepal. He's uh, a professor currently, or was b before he started the company, at, at Columbia University, and he's built a team of 100 machine learning experts experts in Nepal. Wow. So that very much goes into this uh, theme of uh, decentralization, decentralized technology development, uh, like human capital development in other regions. Um, 
and and the fact that we we we're, we're not yet tapping into all the resources yeah. that are available out there, um, and and kind of proving that it is possible to to you know train folks in places in these um, advanced technologies, and it's just about coming up with a process to do that. Right. There's a lot of implications for the future around some of these technologies. What is the role of like? public policy and government or like who's responsible for figuring all this stuff out? Is it, do you, I mean, obviously everyone's responsible, but do you think it's the market just needs to figure it out and decide? Or is there a bit like, does Facebook need to be in charge of figuring out what to do with like the, what their algorithm is doing? Is it government regulators? Like, how do you view that? I know it's a complicated question, but I love this question, and we could do a whole Absolutely. episode on yeah, this this sure. question. And it's something I think about all the time. Um, as I'm investing in this technology, it's it's very important to me to understand the implications or invest with entrepreneurs who want to see this technology out there in a responsible way. Because you're right, it can go either way, and and we're certainly in early enough development of AI and machine learning, as well as I mean, especially. Bitcoin, blockchain, um, to to be able to influence how it's used. Now, Silicon Valley has traditionally been very libertarian that, you know, we just put this out there and market, you know, conditions will create the best applications around this. That has not worked. And, right. and we're certainly seeing a lot of information coming out of Facebook that is very troubling um, when you just let market forces and, and the you know, desire for revenue generation and, and profit to take precedence over what's best for society as a whole. So I believe in a balance there. I, I don't believe in stifling innovation, which is why I've been very involved in conversations with regulators all around the world, including in the United States, about educating them about blockchain technology, um, the pros and cons of it and and uh, kind of what we have to be aware of. Uh, there's certainly negative elements in, in the sector and, you know, as there have been in the internet. Of course, yeah. And, 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 you know, you're not going to necessarily weed all of those out, but some of this technology can be used to help weed that out. And, and we're seeing that around secure cybersecurity and machine learning, right? If you start to kind of track patterns of, of, of behavior, um, you know, st- Many of the dark web nets have been shut down over the last six months, even six to 12 months, uh, through governments cooperating on information that they're gathering. Mm. I do believe there's um, ways to use this technology to combat some of those um, sources. I worry also about diversity um, in, in these sectors. I mean, you know, machine learning is you're building models to predict be future behavior. If you're only putting in one perspective, sure. um, then what does that mean in terms of the recommendations we're going to get down the road? So you know, I'm very involved in, in conversations of how do we make sure that all of those inputs are, are the most diverse. I mean, particularly trembling in, in healthcare or financial services when you're saying, you know, someone in financial services is, is a high credit risk. Just because, um, you know, they haven't uh, had, you know, trackable work history or had a credit card before when, you know, some of those are, you know, the best candidates and the most reliable and microfinance has shown that. Um, So I I think we need to, you know, look beyond just um, the the software and the code and and put a lens of, um, of, 
kind of common sense around it and not just let the code run rampant. Um, one thing we didn't talk about with blockchain is this notion of smart contracts and, and being able to build, you know, automated behavior um, into the blockchain. So I'm going to just use a quick example of, um, uh, you know, something that has positive social impact. But if um, a solar panel is connected to the blockchain and they're getting all of the information on, on how much energy is being generated and then distributed to different houses in a microgrid in a village, or even, I mean, this is actually being tested in Brooklyn, so, um, you know, kind of anywhere in the world. Um, and then you can start to track that energy usage from, from that one panel and, and then um, kind of charge people as they're using it. So, you know, it could be one person owns that solar panel and then they're getting reimbursed for the energy that's being used. So you've created this microgrid that, yeah. um, and that's a smart contract that, that mm-hmm. does that transaction. Um, so so that that's a great use case for this. But, you know, smart contracts, I mean, code can kind of run rampant if you start to combine smart contracts with artificial intelligence and, and say, well, I'm going to have a self-governing organization and I've written this code that if someone behaves this way, then this happens. And, and then it learns from itself. And, but that initial input was not a good input or didn't take into account a lot of considerations. We can't just send that code out there wild. Yeah. And, I mean, we've, we've, we've actually just, we've been doing a bunch of research around machine learning and, and automation here. Um, one, the bias thing is a huge issue. One, and one study I was just looking at was Carnegie Mellon did this study around, uh, companies that have used programmatic advertising software to target high paying jobs to people. And it turns out not super surprisingly, the software tends to target high paying jobs in the, in the advertising of the jobs themselves to men more than women. And it's basically because back before people used programmatic advertising software to target the promotion of the jobs, they did it manually, and they targeted men more than women. And so the machine just learned to do what the people were doing, which is not really surprising. Um, yeah, so it's, and that's that's just like a tiny little thread that you could apply to so many different elements of machine learning and sort of what's going on in different industries. Figuring out how to clean that data before we like make robots be worse than us is a huge challenge. Yes, and, and that's why I'm very involved in, in making sure that we have more inclusive uh, tech development, kind of this next phase of, of automation and decentralization, because we certainly already know what some of the drawbacks are from what we've seen happen with the Internet. Yeah. And, and, and so we can really learn from that and, and make sure that some of those mistakes are not repeated. Jalik, thank you so much for joining us on the Webby Podcast. It's been great talking to you. It's great to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to Jalik for stopping by the studio to talk with me. If you're looking to keep up with all her latest projects, you can check out her blog. It's at barefootvc.com or follow her on Twitter at Jalik, at J-A-L-A-K. Our editorial director is Nicole Ferraro. Our producer is Sebastian Ade. Research and writing by Michael Charbonneau and Jordana Jarrett. Thank you all for listening. We will see you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.